Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you enjoy the podcast, you can support it for $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and From John to Justin, available on all podcast platforms. Today I'm speaking with Lorna Poplock, who recently wrote a book called The Dawn, which looks at the history of the Dawn Jail in Toronto. It's a really interesting book, and it's a really interesting history. And we talk about the jail, the characters within it, the escapes, and much more. So let's get right to the interview. Well, first question is, what inspired you to, to write the book on the Don? Um, I'd say that the first spark came when I was uh, working on my first book. My first book was called Drop Dead, A Horrible History of Hanging in Canada. And at that time, uh, I did a lot of research. I had a lot of stories about individuals. But I also had three stories on what I called, in fact, a whole chapter devoted to what I called my bricks and mortar characters. So those were institutions, prisons. And because it was about hanging, they were obviously uh, prisons where uh, hanging or jails, where hanging took place. So top of the list for me was the Don Jail. Firstly, um, it, it was in my city, it is in my city. Uh, secondly, um, it, it was really top of the list, you know, <laughs> one of the most awful institutions. And quite a few hangings took place there over the years. In fact, between uh, 1872 and 1962, uh, there were 34 men hanged in the Don Jail. So that really piqued my interest and I started doing more research and obviously I wanted to write up on the Don Jail and I found all sorts of interesting facts about it. I found, for example, that it took six years to build. So, I mean, why should it take that long? It really did seem a long time. You know, one mm -hmm. would think one year or two years, perhaps. It took six years to build. I found out also that uh, about four years in, there was a fire in the jail. So that was really interesting. And, um, you know, they had to kind of start. It was a really serious fire. And of course, the insurance money didn't cover. Uh, so it, there were all sorts of, um, of facts that came out. And then I went down to the jail because it's in my, my city and I live maybe about 30, 40 minutes away from it. And I walked down and I went into the library and the librarian took me on a tour of the Don Jail because the library, the library that I'm talking about is actually the Bridgepoint Library. So the Don Jail is actually part of the Bridgepoint complex now. It's the administrative building for Bridgepoint. So, you know, it's come a long way since those early days when it was just on an outpost all alone outside the city in Toronto. So anyway, the librarian took me on a tour and she introduced me to people and uh, you know, I, I had contact with these people over time. They provided me with more information, with images, and I was just snagged. <laughs> and then everything, you know, I, I was writing another book at the time, so I put this aside in a sense. And then it seemed as if a lot of other factors, you know, every time I turned somewhere, I, I would find something which was associated with the Don Jail. You know, I walked into um, St. James Cemetery, for example, I was walking through St. James Cemetery, which is 
on Parliament Street uh, in Toronto, downtown Toronto. And as I was walking along, I passed a grave marker. And I went to look at the grave marker and I saw that it was the marker of William Thomas. He was the architect of the Don Jail. So there were all these things that were just kind of nudging me and, uh, you know, kind of insisting that maybe this was something that I needed to take a look at. And here I am, the book is done. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned 1962. Uh, it seems like it's right around the time with the last two hangings in Canadian history. Was, was that actually at the Don Jail that the last two hangings? Yes, hanged? those were at the Don Jail. Yeah. Okay. Those were um, Ronald Turpin and William um, uh, Lucas. Oh gosh, his first name. Arthur Lucas, I'm sorry. Uh, Ronald Turpin and Arthur Lucas. So they were hanged back to back in the jail. And um, just before their hanging, in fact, uh, you know, one of the, the lawyers came around and said, you'll probably be the last ones to hang. And uh, Turpin, who had a kind of a, a strange uh, sense of humor said, well, you know, that's a real consolation. But in <laughs> fact, they were. That was in 1962, mm -hmm. but it took till 1976 before uh, capital punishment was abolished in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, now the the dawn. It was uh, what made it so different in in its time. Well, that it was a different type of jail. What made it different? So the dawn jail was built in. It was started in. <clears throat> excuse me. It was started in 1858. It was finished in 1864. So the dawn jail was actually the fourth jail built in Toronto. Well. I suppose technically you'd say it was the second jail built in Toronto because the first two were built in the town of York. So the city of Toronto was incorporated in 1834. So the first two jails, the first was in 1800, built in 1800, the second one in 1824. So just to briefly tell you what these ones were like, the first one was a log cabin. It had 10 rooms. It had no heating initially. Eventually, I think that they, they put a little heater somewhere in the middle of the thing. It accommodated a whole slew of people, different kinds, men, women, children, debtors, people awaiting um, execution of their sentence or trial. So it was a real mishmash of people in there and it was a log cabin. So the conditions were terrible, very drafty, very cold. The second one was a brick building and, and this one was on King Street, just to, to, to situate it. It was on King Street where the King Edward Hotel is today. So it was right downtown, what we would call, call downtown today, but in a sense, um, the town was so small, it was like 10 blocks in those days. So, you know, it was kind of a little bit outside the town. The second one was also in that general area. That was a brick building. And that one was possibly slightly bigger, although historians at the time complained that it was very ugly. But also conditions were terrible in there. Some of the windows were broken. And um, again, there um, the inmates were sleeping on the floor, just on straw on the floor. There were no beds. In fact, I think it was only in 1851 that uh, people, that inmates got proper iron bedsteads. Until then, they'd just be sleeping on the floor, on the floor, on straw. So that was the second one. The third one was um, on Front Street at Parliament, and it was right on the waterfront. Front Street then was, in fact, on the front and that was also you know a terrible institution and um you know it had a wall around it and um uh, there was a if they needed they would put the gallows up on the wall because hangings took place there as well 
So those were the three, that one was built in 1840. So those were the three precursors. So by the time we got um, to the middle of the 1850s, uh, the, the city and the province really felt that they needed another jail and a bigger one to accommodate the population, which by then was about 50,000 people. So they needed something bigger. This was their assessment. And when you look at what the jail was, it was really different. It was architect designed. And the architect who designed it was one of the prominent architects, William Thomas, in Toronto at that time. And um, it incorporated the, uh, the new concepts, the new philosophies that had been in the ether for a while. Uh, the new reformist philosophies. Uh, for example, John Howard was one of the foremost. He was a, a Brit and he was one of the foremost, uh, foremost um, reformist penal reformist. And he wrote a book in 1777. Uh, it was called The State of the Prisons in England and Wales. And he spoke ab about exactly that, what jails and prisons were like. And uh, they were terrible places. They, the inmates or the prisoners were accommodated in, in big rooms, all higgledy-piggledy, men, women, children, debtors, uh, no sanitation. And he he mooted a whole new way of looking at things. He felt that prisons should be built in a certain way. For example, he even sort of dove into the architecture of prisons, the site of prisons. They should be outside. Jails and prisons should be outside the city, you know, in fresh air. Uh, that they should, the actual prison should have cells rather than big rooms because that protected the inmates more. And, um, things like ventilation, sanitation, those were important to him. So this was a whole new uh, sort of mood, a whole new flavor that was coming to corrections. And by the time the Don Jail was built in uh, the 18th, the time it opened in 1864, it incorporated these trends. And in fact, it was the first uh, institution of its kind in British North America. Um, now, it's described as, uh, or was described as like a palace for, for prisoners, but it was, it was quite the opposite of that for anybody who, uh, who had to be housed in there. Yeah, so the palace aspect, it was regarded as a palace because, as, as I mentioned to you, it was architect designed, William Thomas, foremost architect, and it incorporated the, the latest trends in architecture, in penal architecture at the time. And it was a really uh, monumental building. It was a fine looking building. It, uh, it's got this wonderful facade. Uh, you and I are on a Zoom call at the moment. So uh, you can see behind me this facade, which has kind of been clean, cleaned up. If I move slightly out the way, you'll see, now you can't see it, but there was a, a, an entrance, a very uh, substantial entrance, uh, big oak doors, and on the top of the entrance, there was a keystone. So it, the facade was, was very monumental, uh, four and a half stories, uh, administrative block in the center, and behind the administration section, there was a rotunda, big, wonderful uh, sort of soaring space. And on the side, there were wings, 
and the wings were where the cells were. So the cells were arranged back to back along the center of the wings and there were windows facing outwards. So there was a lot of light coming into the building and this light was so important to the early reformers. So it really did seem to be a palace and that was what it was described as. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that didn't last for very long. Uh, what happened was that very soon, um, some of the, the sort of basic precepts that had been built into the jail, for example, the jail, the, the, the cells were very small because the thought behind that was that the inmates would only spend the nighttime in the jail. So they would have these little cells in the nighttime, they would be individual cells, they would be there, they would be able to, um, to sort of think about things, maybe repent at their leisure in silence, and in the day they would be doing other things. They would be working because there was a, the jail was built on the grounds of an industrial farm. So there was a farm, they should be planting peas and potatoes or in classrooms perhaps. But unfortunately, as time went along and uh, penal philosophies changed, the, what happened to the inmates changed as well. So instead of being able to go outdoors and sort of spend time working and doing uh, sort of meaningful work, they found themselves spending more and more time inside. So at night they would be in the cells and uh, in the daytime they would be in the corridors. So as the, the, the city got bigger and bigger and the inmate population got bigger and bigger as well to, you know, sort of correspondingly, the jail just couldn't cope with it anymore. So it got overcrowded. And in fact, over the years, overcrowding was the main criticism leveled against the jail always that it was overcrowded. The other big problem was uh, sanitation because you had these tiny little cells. Uh, I remember reading, in fact, I do mention it in the book. Uh, I, uh, my book is called The Don, The Horrible His History of Hanging in, in um, Toronto. I'm sorry. It's called The Don, The Story of Toronto's Infamous Jail. I was mixing my two titles up there. Uh, Anyway, so these cells, as I described at one point in the book, Amaya described it as being the cell, as being so small, so narrow, that you couldn't back a fat horse into it. So you had these tiny little cells uh, initially for one person, but as time went on and, uh, you know, sort of overcrowding uh, became the norm in the jail, uh, you'd find two or perhaps even three people stuffed into each cell. So it was very overcrowded and there was no sanitation in the cells at all. So the inmates would have night pails. So you can imagine with the jail being overcrowded and people having to use pails in the night, it was, it was terrible. So, you know, this, this, this was the, the smell as um, it was described was was absolutely awful within the jail. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, uh, tell me a bit about George Basher, or ba ba yeah, Basher. Yeah, um, his, his full name was George Headley Basher. Now, when I came across that name and I realized that he had been the governor of the Don, uh, you know, I scratched my head and I thought to myself, you know, nonfiction just gives you these things. It, it, it makes gifts of things like that. I mean, 
a name like George Headley Basher, you know, it just sort of suggested to me the type of person that he was. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that suggestion was correct. <laughs> so George Headley Basher, whenever I think of him, I have to mention both his first names and his last name. <laughs> uh, George Headley Basher was born in um, England. So he was uh, British born and he came to Canada in 1913, originally to join the Toronto police, but he enlisted during the war and he rose through the, the ranks in the war. And eventually he emerged um, in 1918. And the last thing that he'd done during the war is that he had run a big prison in Rouen in France. So when he came back, he, he did come back to Canada and uh, the city and the province were looking for a governor. The last two years, there had been no governor between 1917 and 1919, this was. There'd been no governor at all. And the jail had been very ineffectually run. So they needed somebody, uh, just a firm hand to, uh, to sort of take the tiller at that point. And they found it in, um, in George Hedley Basher. He was what they wanted. They, they favored returned, um, returned soldiers. So he was a returned soldier. And by the end of the war, he was a major. And for 12 years, it was between 1919 and 1931, he ruled the jail with a very firm hand. So he took over when there, there was, uh, you know, everything was very demoralized and he had very firm views. He had fir firm views on punishment. For example, uh, he was, he believed in capital punishment. Uh, he wasn't so sure whether it should be by hanging. Uh, he told an inquiry once that he believed in capital punishment, but maybe there were other methods, but he didn't suggest what that might be. He was a firm believer in corporal punishment. So he called it strapping. So this was where um, inmates would be strapped with a, a wide belt, you know, a strap. So he believed in strapping, although he preferred to call it spanking. I'll, I'll leave a pause after that. <laughs> and in fact, people were strapped at the Don Jail, you know, over time. In fact, originally, the methodology was whipping. In fact, I have a, a picture, a, a sketch in my book of a, an inmate being whipped in this wonderful rotunda where sort of a, a movable scaffold had been set up. So he believed in spanking and he later ended up at the Guelph Reformatory. He ran that for a while. And after he'd been there, he said that the inmates there who he had had strapped or spanked actually thanked him because uh, they said it, it, it put them on the right track. And um, he was a, a very firm disciplinarian, but to be fair to him, he did temper this with mercy. Uh, one anecdote that I can tell you is that uh, at one point there was an, an Armenian man on death row and uh, there were no Armenian priests in Canada. And this man was very distressed. He, he went on a hunger strike. All he did was smoke and, and he cried the whole time. So Basha actually reached out to Boston, I think, you know, to, to places in the States to see if he could find an Armenian church with a priest who could, who could sort of give some kind of solace to this man. So, you know, there, there were the two aspects to him. 
Eventually, he left in 1931 and he went on to the Langstaff uh, jail uh, farm, which was just north of Toronto. And there it was said that he used to do his rounds on horseback and he used to jump his horses over hedges as he was doing his rounds. And he went on to, uh, to, to serve in the Second World War. After the Second World War, he ran the Guelph Reformatory. And then he became uh, the Minister of Reform Institutions. Uh, but he, he came back to, to kind of oversee the jail in 1952. And that really turned out to be a low point in his career. Uh, why was it a low point? Ah, okay. So the reason it was a low point was that in 1952, uh, there were, in, the, in 1951 and 1952, were two very famous escapes from the jail. And both these escapes were by members of the Boyd gang. And this was a gang of uh, bank robbers who... Um, you know, I would say that in, in the spectrum of violence, they were probably not the most violent, but they robbed banks and they robbed banks using weapons. So, you know, they, they, they were serious criminals. Mm -hmm. So three of them ended up in the jail in 1951 and they escaped from the jail by sawing through the window. Uh, subsequently, they met up with the fourth one. So the, their names were um, Edwin Boyd, Lenny Jackson, Willie Jackson. So Lenny and Willie were not, although they had the last name, they were not related. Uh, they were the ones, they, three of them, those were the ones that, that did the first escape, that escaped the first time. And then they met up with another man whose name was Steve Sushan. And they promptly started robbing banks again and then so, so that was they, they escaped in 19 the end towards the end of 1951 in early 1952 in march of 1952 lenny jackson and steve sushan were in a car and this car was uh, sort of flagged down by a couple of policemen and steve sushan shot the policeman this man's name was eddie tong and he subsequently died. So now, in addition to, to being kind of quite serious bank robbers, these men were murderers as well. So eventually they were, they were hunted down, they were put in the Don jail. This time they were in death row. So four cells in death row and they were incarcerated in death row. And they escaped. They escaped from death row. They managed to get a key so that they could get out of their cells into the corridor in front of, uh, you know, there was a corridor in front of these four cells and they managed to get a saw, which was supposedly smuggled in by the lawyer, by one of these loyal, although the man did deny that. And they sawed through the window, they escaped again, four of them this time. Uh, it didn't take long before they were apprehended, but this was what was happening in 1952 when George Basher stepped in again. And um, he got involved and um, he had made sure that the governor was one of his own men at this time. But that governor didn't perform very well because the, the second jail break took place under his watch. 
So really, this wasn't a very high point in Basha's uh, career, but he did go on to serve, uh, you know, sort of as uh, as a minister for for another few years. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you kind of mentioned a few uh, of the people, but what what were some of the memorable characters that uh, that were housed in the in the Don? Um, going back, um, one memorable case was um, the case of um, Carrie Davies. Now, this was in 1915, and she uh, was a young serving girl, and she shot a member of the very powerful Massey family. Uh, She was uh, his housekeeper or servant, uh, I don't know what you would call her, and uh, he made advances towards her, and she was terrified of the man, and she knew that there was a weapon in the house. She took the weapon and when he came home from work one evening, she actually stepped out of the house and she shot him and killed him. And this was observed, you know, it was witnessed. So she was uh, put in prison and she was tried for murder. She had a very good lawyer and um, she had a good case. You know, the the lawyer presented the case that, uh, you know, she was, she was kind of stalked and she was, um, uh, she was vulnerable. And in fact, she was acquitted of, of this murder case. But for the eight days and, and prior to that, as the case was moving for, through the courts, she was housed in the Don Jail. Now, the, because of the fact that there were very rough types in the Don Jail at that time, the matron in charge took on her and she was housed in the infirmary, not mm-hmm. with the, the general uh, sort of jail population that kind of might have been quite hard bitten. She was 18 years old, very vulnerable, and um, she was acquitted. So at the end of all of that, she, uh, she thanked the jail, she thanked um, her uh, lawyer, she thanked, she thanked just about everybody, uh, and she was acquitted. So that was a very high profile case uh, of somebody who, who spent time in the jail. Um, now, you, you, you did mention a, a couple of the, the guys who did escape, but uh, was it known for escapes? Were there any other major escapes other than the one in 1951 52? Um, actually, one of the escapes that, that comes to mind and that, that's really one of my favorites uh, took place in 1908, I think it was. And um, at this time, and, and really, it, it, it was very embarrassing for the jail because at this time, um, the, as I said, the jail got very crowded and there was a lot of overflow and there were some sort of very kind of serious offenders uh, being housed, awaiting trial, awaiting transportation elsewhere, housed in one of the corridors, very close to the execution chamber. And by some methodology or other, they managed to get the key to the execution chamber. And they cut through, there were seven of them implicated. Very, they, were, they were called very serious offenders. And they managed to cut their way through the wall, three foot thick wall of the room. This is the execution chamber. They cut their way through the wall using the lever 
that was pulled when um, <laughs> when the the gallows was activated. Mm -hmm. So they cut their way through and they escaped. And uh, you know, some of them were apprehended again. But you know, this was a real scandal <laughs> at the time, and that was, as I say, in 1908. That's uh, that's crazy to use yeah. to use like the the actual handle in the execution room. You think of people yes, that, kind of getting out of their cells, but not the execution room. <laughs> yeah, but as I say, they weren't actually in cells; they were in the corridor. Right, right, yeah. So that's that's what made it so easy. <laughs> it was just the hardest part, I guess, was getting into the room. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Um, so, say you're arrested uh, and you're tried and convicted, and you're sent to sent to the dawn. Uh, what could you expect from the next few years uh, of your life living at the dawn? Um, you know, it, it, it was pretty tough in there. As I said, um, overcrowding was, was, always, was always a problem. So um, the people were overcrowded. Um, there were other problems there as well. Um, uh, you know, uh, there were violent offenders housed there. It was kind of a holding tank in a sense. Mm -hmm. So violent offenders could be, could be held there pending being moved to other facilities or whatever. So it, it wasn't a very place, a pleasant place to be in. There was, um, there was disease, you know, there were, there were mice uh, in the place, there were rats in the place and there was disease. So um, it, it, it wasn't a great place to be incarcerated in. And as I said, as time went on, it became more and more crowded. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's become more and more crowded. You've had the escapes in, uh, in 1951, 52. Uh, obviously it's no longer a jail. So what led to its eventual closure uh, as a jail? Um, so it opened in 1864 and it closed in 1977. Um, over the years, there had been a lot of, um, a lot written about the jail, a lot of flack being directed uh, against the jail. There had been, um, there had been um, um, complaints. For example, uh, there were grand juries who had complained, you know, grand juries had come in, who had examined the facilities of the jail, who had complained about the facilities of the jail, you know, sort of how the prisoners were being treated. So that was one thing. Um, over time, there were reports, <coughs> excuse me. Um, there was a, a commission, a Royal Commission in 1952 that spoke about the low staff morale and, um, you know, sort of, so there were reports over a period of time and there were the individuals who complained about it as well, ex-inmates, uh, the press, you know, the press wrote a lot about the conditions in the jail. So it was not doing well. It was not doing well. Um, eventually a, um, a another jail, that, that was the old Don jail. So the new Don jail was built next to the old Don jail. And um, so a lot of the inmates were moved over to that facility. And then in um, December, 1977, Frank Dre, who was then uh, the, what was he? He was the Minister of Correctional Services. He um, announced 
that the jail was going to be shut down. And in fact, he wanted it to be pulled down and he wanted it to be turned into a garden for the benefits of uh, the people at the nearby um, hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, but in fact, it wasn't pulled down. You know, there was a lot of uh, public outcry because, uh, you know, it was an institution. And, um, you know, what does one do with an institution, even if it is uh, tainted? You know, should mm -hmm. you pull it down or should you not pull it down? So, in fact, it wasn't pulled down. But it was closed um, in, um, as I say, in 1977. And then it just lingered on. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, an, it's a beautiful, from the picture behind you, it is a very nice looking building. So I can understand, you know, both the, the historical aspect of keeping it, but also the, the aesthetic of the, the building as well, because, you know, you don't get too many of those buildings anymore. Yes, ultimately in the 2000s, it was, uh, it was brought into uh, the Riverdale. So, so there was a hospital at the back and mm -hmm. ultimately um, the hospital became Bridgepoint. And Bridgepoint, when they were building a new facility on that uh, area, in, the, in that area, they uh, sort of incorporated the jail, which was by then an historic building. They incorporated as their um, as their administration building. Yes, and, and also uh, the public. It, it's open to the public, so public the public can walk through. There's certain areas that you can walk through. Uh, they've retained some of the old cells. Um, I, you know, I sort of did a walkthrough. I was taken around the building by one of the, the staff there. And, you know, there, there are sort of hidden areas. For example, there's a, um, a computer room, you know, sort of bristling with uh, pipes and, uh, and, and sort of other sort of computer equipment. And there are two old portraits, well, um, landscapes on the wall that were obviously painted by an inmate sort of way back. Huh. And um, in one of the offices upstairs, there's, there's a big door. And when that door swings back, there are two of the old um, steel jails that were built when the, the jail was sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of repairs and, uh, and uh, sort of new facilities were added to the jail. So there are two of these old steel jails hidden behind the big door so it's it's really a very interesting building and the public is welcome the public can wander through and there are you know you can you can pick up a pamphlet and sort of see some of the old jails what they looked like including those narrow ones that were so narrow that a fat horse couldn't be backed into them so um you know it's, it's a very interesting facility but um it's it's been beautifully redone in fact it, it was a prize-winning um, mm -hmm. sort of restoration, but it's dark. You know, it is dark. One, one can feel the history of the place. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, people picking up the book, what do you hope they get out of reading the book and, and discovering the history of the Don? You know, in, in the beginning, I, I asked certain questions. So, one of the questions that I ask is, you know, it was built with such high hopes, with the reformist ideals and with a great architect and, you know, the sort of highest architectural principles. So the first question I ask is what went wrong? So I hope that people, when they, when they come to the book, will, will be able to, to get an answer to that, what went wrong. Other questions I ask is, did the jail protect the jailed and the jailers. 
uh, did it serve the city? I mean, the city started out as very small. You know, they were, um, it, it, the jail was built to accommodate uh, a, a population of 50,000 people. What happened? You know, mm -hmm. as the city grew, did the jail accommodate or did it not? And um, one of the questions that I asked was, what does one do with a tainted edifice when it's reached the end of its life? So I hope that people will, will get answers to those questions. Um, additionally, uh, the, Don, the, the Don Jail is very different today um, after the heritage restoration. But, you know, as I said to you before, I think that darkness does still persist there. I do feel, mm -hmm. you know, it's very light and bright, white walls, red trim. It's very light and bright, but that darkness, I think, does, does exist there. And um, I remember, and in fact, I do quote in the book, I quote Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who said, um, every place where men have lived and died is a haunted place. So there are ghosts in the building. Mm -hmm. And the only way that one can recognize these ghosts and remember these ghosts is by having memorials, by keeping buildings, by having books, so in a sense, I'm hoping that, that this book will just help people to remember the Don and to remember the very vulnerable people who went through it, you know, the, the, the damaged people, the, the sad people and people who were innocent mm -hmm. who went through the Don. So I think, you know, sort of the bottom line here is that I really want people to remember the Don. And in fact, that, that's what I, I term one of the... Um, the chapters in the book, Remember the Dawn. And then uh, the last question is, uh, for people who want to get the book, where can they get it? Uh, I guess most bookstores, uh, website or anything like that? Yes, I do have a website. It's uh, www.lornapoplack, just first name, last name, .com. And uh, there is a link, there is a Don page, and there is a link on that page to um, various uh, sites that it can be bought from. What I like to encourage people to do is to buy the book from their local bookstore, you know, just uh, to support their indie bookstores. Mm -hmm. But if that is impossible, then of course it is available from the big players, from the Amazons, the Indigos. And uh, yeah, I would encourage them if they want to um, learn about the Don to, to pick up the book. I hope you enjoyed that interview, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx, just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Diane Wade. Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. As well, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Canadian History X. Remember, that's E-H-X. I'm on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And don't forget, you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. 
Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.